One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's the evening of the 15th of June. The sounds you're hearing is Lviv. Here we go. Driving down a heavily forested mountain now in mid-Germany to where we'll be spending the night. And when we stopped on the hard shoulder, there was smoke coming out of the engine. So we lifted the bonnet and stood back. What I notice in the checkpoints that we passed through is how young the soldiers were. And the sight of those boys... Those sort of quivering teenagers with their AK-47s and brand spanking new uniforms made me absolutely determined to, to do what I can to make sure that more boys aren't called up. The cars are done. Materials are packed. Now, off to Kharkiv. Every single house here, the roofs have been destroyed. It looks com- almost completely abandoned. She's very, very grateful. She's very moved. My friends, which were gone, and these days you cannot ever, ever, ever forget, because I lost lots of friends. We've just passed on the left another destroyed Russian tank. It does very much feel like we're getting closer. We're actually doing this to help them, but more importantly, on top of that, to stop Putin. So I'm now in suburban South London, just trying to find the rendezvous point now, trying to find where these... Ah, that must be them. Yes, that's definitely them. And I'm no great believer of pathetic fallacy, but I've just seen a flash of lightning and a deep roll of thunder up ahead. I'm David Knowles, and welcome to a special two-part episode of Ukraine, the latest. In summer 2023, I travelled with a group of British volunteers all the way from the UK to Ukraine. The volunteers are taking material and aid to Ukrainian units fighting on the front line. I'll be with them for their journey to understand their motives and what their aid means to the troops receiving them. My own journey starts in slightly more prosaic circumstances. I'm on a residential street in South London, waiting for a bus to get to the rendezvous point It's deep England here, lots of detached houses, red buses, people going home from school. Just to paint you a bit of a picture, the microphone has a large furry top to make sure I can use it outside, and I can tell you that's attracting summer looks. So the plan for today is head to the rendezvous point and take one of the vehicles over to Calais. I'm curious to hear more about the volunteers. Where are they from? What are their motivations? Certainly, it's going to be an interesting next 10 days. Do stay with me. 
The storm passed overhead, and we set off towards the channel crossing. I was going to be sharing a car with Hugh, not his real name, all the way from the UK to eastern Ukraine. In fact, we've changed the names of all the volunteers for their security. So, first things first, I wanted to understand the essentials of the trip. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on this trip. What's in store? Well, we're heading off in a convoy of six vehicles, and four of them, I think, are Mitsubishi L200s, which is the sort of vehicle that's most popular with frontline volunteer forces that we're delivering to. Another is a very similar vehicle, and we have a Shogun as well, and a quad bike, and some drones, some military clothing, sleeping bags, lots of summer boots, generator, 3D printer, various bits and pieces that people have donated that we've been told by the units we're supporting are very useful to them. You mentioned the make of the vehicles we're driving there and leaving there, giving them to the soldiers. Why do they like these vehicles? What's so special about them? What's their utility? They're pretty tough, reliable vehicles. They're pretty popular in England, actually. For people who don't know what an L200 is like, it's a normal, it's a normal pickup, the type that farmers and builders use. And flatbed at the back, double cab, usually diesel, four-wheel drive not electronically complicated or anything like that. Something they can easily get spare parts, easily work on, not too expensive, tough, reliable, etc, etc. And what they do with them is they convert them essentially into either small fighting vehicles or small humanitarian ambulances, that sort of thing. And they mount guns or much more rocket launchers on them. And what they tend to do is put a drone and some missiles in the cab, and then they head off, off behind the lines, bung up a drone, find a target, and then zap it. And then they nip back over the border again, or wherever they're going, out of harm's way, as quickly as they can before any return fire comes in. This isn't the first time you've travelled to Ukraine with this group of volunteers. So how did you get involved? I got involved through a family member who had done a lot of work in Ukraine and we had friends in Kiev and the immediate concern actually was to get help to our friends in Kiev for them to buy vital supplies and if possible get out if they wanted to. So we, or my wife actually, set up a WhatsApp group of friends who we thought might be interested, might, be, might want to be involved, might want to contribute. We were astonished how generous the response was. So we had more money than we needed, or they needed, for their immediate needs. And so got in touch with military units and started asking them what they really needed. And of course, right at the start, especially the volunteer units, had basically nothing at all. So instead of, for example, these four-wheel drives, they were driving up to the Russian lines and behind the Russian lines in old larders and fields, across fields. So absolutely almost anything military that we could buy legally was useful to them. So we raised enough money to buy one of these trucks, filled it full of the sort of kit I was talking about, and drove it out to the unit who had ordered the stuff. The demand from the units on the front line, more or less by accident, we fell into doing this pretty much every two months it turned out. That seemed to be the time frame for blocking out 10 days for a trip in, in, in my diary, because I still work on time raising enough money to have a reasonable amount of stuff to take out and delivering it. 
Hugh and his group continued to bring aid to Ukrainian troops every few months, and in November 2022, I was put in touch with one of his colleagues and interviewed them. You can hear that interview again by searching for the episode Heavy Shelling in Donbass and Interview with an Undercover Volunteer Supplying the Front Lines from the 21st of November 2022. Little did I know at the time the impact it would have. Then the Telegraph podcast became involved and very kindly gave us some air cover and it all went a bit um, ballistic after that. We got an extraordinary deluge of offers from all over the world, actually. So he said it was really quite hard to manage because we, we all had our own day jobs, as it were. But what we have tried to do is to persuade other people to mimic our operation. We sort of like to think of it in terms of the sort of small boats of Dunkirk, I suppose, getting lots of people essentially doing the same thing. What you don't want is a huge convoy of trucks with all the usual sort of problems of visibility and administration and complexity and all that sort of stuff. We want really to teach other people to do the same as us. been to Ukraine many, many times over the past year delivering this aid. What are your impressions of the country and how has it changed in the times that you've been back and forth? The first time I went, it was only shortly after the, the Russians had been kicked out of Kyiv. There were huge queues at the border in both directions, enormous numbers of roadblocks, a lot of damage, particularly around Kyiv, lots of tanks and actually all that stuff you see in the main square in the centre of Kyiv was all along the side of the road. And a sort of sense of determined resistance stoicism. What's happened over the following visits has been remarkably fast clear up and return to normality. The morale is another big thing that's changed. The, the, the change from that sort of resigned stoicism at the start, you know, they'll never beat us because we're Ukrainians, but no very obvious way in which they, they thought that was going to be achieved. They're now, I would say now, I can't remember the last time I saw a spoke to a Ukrainian who didn't think it would be politically impossible to give up the war without getting the Crimea back. It's that much of a change. There's a sort of general assumption that they are going to win this one. After a long drive, we reached the Channel Tunnel and crossed over the British border. The guard took one long look at the line of L200s and said, Off to Ukraine, are you? before waving us ahead to board the train. In France, we arrived at the first hotel of the trip, close to the tunnel entrance. Before we could have some dinner, however, there was work for the volunteers. So we're in a hotel car park in northern France, having crossed over on the tunnel. Uh, the volunteers are all around. They've taken off quite a few of the things from the from the trucks just to um, split up some of the things. They've all come in bulk. Uh, so you know, there's a huge bag of tourniquets. They have a, a mix of things that arrive in terms of medical aid, loads of boots and military clothing. You can see some drones as well. I think some ration packs down there as well. Some thermal. This is all happening in a fairly deserted French car park and the first uh, bemused locals have just walked past quizzically wondering what on earth is going on. I was curious about what Hugh had said about the utility of the trucks and wanted to hear more about how they were used on the front line. 
So I caught up with Mikhailo, one of the Ukrainian volunteers traveling with the group to translate. So just a couple of ways that those vehicles can be used in is, first off, is reconnaissance. So we commonly use one of those pickup trucks in order to drive to the front line or maybe sometimes behind into the, into the gray zone, which means no man's land, and get a drone into air, which means that people are able to see the front line and enemies advance or our units advance. So that sometimes contributes towards the success of defense or attack and enemy moving in or being repelled. Could you talk a little bit about how these trucks that we're taking to Ukraine now are used by the medics in the field and the difference that that makes? So sometimes people can be put in the back of this truck or just inside depending on the type of injury that they suffered and then there could be a couple of people who are injured inside and it means that they're going to be delivered to the, I'm not sure of the exact term in English, but the stabilization facility that will get them, that will get them safe and will mean the difference between life or death. There's an awful lot of stuff actually, seeing it laid out here. And it's, yeah, this is our first night. This is first night of the trip, really, in France. So, yeah, just a quick update uh, on the first night in the evening. It's the second day of the expedition here. We've been through three countries so far in Western Europe, setting off from Calais, heading through Belgium and then further on through the Netherlands, past Eindhoven, and now we're coming down through Germany. I'm not entirely sure where we are. It feels like all the service stations are sort of, all the petrol stations are blurring into one at the moment. Uh, I've been trying to pick up... Sort of During that second day, we had the first hiccup of the trip. One of the cars broke down. Volunteers are crowded around one of the cars, which has been making some strange noises. Um, what do we think has gone wrong? My guess is... Says this is Michael, another volunteer who's raised thousands of pounds and sourced his own vehicle to drive to Ukraine. There's a lot of, I think, should we say, uninformed, unmechanical peering into the engine, <laughs> hoping that somehow the sharper, the more intense the gaze, a cure might just magic itself. One of the volunteers is... Uh, direct video calling the mechanic back in the UK, showing them inside the bonnet of, of the truck, showing them the problem. The volunteers managed to fix that quickly, 15 minutes at the most. But the cars they're using, bringing over to Ukraine, are all somewhat old. The risk of them breaking down is high. That gives you an idea of just how precarious this whole enterprise is and what sort of gear Ukrainian soldiers are working with. But we couldn't waste time we still had a long way to go. Through the Netherlands to our next stop for the night in central Germany. It was a very long drive. We're coming to the end of our second day driving to Ukraine. Just driving down a heavily forested mountain now in mid-Germany to where we'll be spending the night tonight. And it's a really beautiful evening. The clouds are the most beautiful parts of the drive. We've left the low countries and they were far, far behind. We're surrounded by forested hills. It's dusk here. You can just hear the the birds. I imagine this is what many Ukrainian towns were like at dusk. Children playing, people going to dinner before the war. And that really all these people want is to enjoy the same peace that the residents of this town in Germany have. 
The days blurred together as we sped across Germany. All seemed to be going well. And then the second car broke down. This time, it was a lot more serious. So the convoy is approaching the Polish border. We've left Dresden behind us, but we've had to pull in at a service station because one of the cars, not the car I'm in, but one of the cars uh, is having engine trouble, apparently smoke uh, overheating. I talked to Alex, one of the volunteers who was in that car. Basically, we were driving along in the convoy, no issues at all, and then suddenly we noticed the temperature gauge was on maximum, so we pulled straight in, and when we stopped on the hard shoulder, there was smoke coming out of the engine. So we lifted the bonnet and stood back to wait for it to cool down. Uh, We've checked the oil and there's no water in the oil, but there is oil in the water. But the reality is that it's an old vehicle and we've been driving it yesterday for 10 hours and today we'll be going for about five. Do we know what the options are um, for the things in your truck, for you and and your co-pilots? What do we think might happen now? So we've decanted all the valuable stuff. So there's three drones on the truck, which but the value is significant, so we've decanted them into other vehicles. You were rescued from the hard shoulder by a Ukrainian. What happened there? Yes. So we were stood trying to give assistance people our um, location, and then suddenly this minibus with a trailer on the back pulled in. It had a Ukrainian number plate, and within minutes the truck was on the back of his trailer and we were heading towards the services to catch up with everyone else. They didn't speak any English, but we were able to use our uh, Ukrainian translator to uh, talk to them. And as soon as they spotted two trucks with GB plates by the side of the road, I think they knew exactly where we were heading. We're all loaded up with kit, so they would have known. You know, we were pointing in the direction of Poland towards Ukraine, so I think they would have known what we were doing and were happy to help. Alex is one of the people who Hugh convinced to start their own operation. So the, the way they described it is that uh, you need to buy a truck, which is preferably a Mitsubishi L200 for about £4,000. Travel costs are about 1000 And then for all the equipment that you can load into the truck, it comes to about six. So I paid for the truck and the travel myself and the business I work in, the marketing department, helped me raise the 6000 And we had a set up a GoFundMe page and we just approached different categories of business people and friends and all the rest of it and we've actually raised nearly nine thousand pounds what for you morally is is at the heart of this what why are you doing this it's interesting you say that actually because lots of people in the uk have said to me why aren't we raising money to help people in in the uk why are we helping ukrainians we don't really have much contact with and for me that isn't the point we're actually doing this to help them but more importantly on top of that to stop Putin. And that's, that, that's, that's my motivation for doing it. I also caught up with William, another volunteer. And when he's talking about small boats, he's of course referencing Dunkirk, when over 800 private boats sailed across the Channel to rescue Allied soldiers in World War II. I've heard this idea of the small boat spirit before amongst other volunteers in Ukraine. It's the modern cause that's most like the causes that our ancestors were brave enough to face. And, uh, and if they hadn't, our lives would be very different. And I, I have a son in the army and I want to do what I can to make sure that he's not called upon to, to face this challenge in his 
professional capacity. I think Putin invading Ukraine seems like an attempt to reverse the outcome of the, or at least turn the clock back on the outcome of the Cold War, which is, to me personally, quite important. And the third reason is that we host a courageous Ukrainian family who fled from Odessa with very little, for whom this is, of course, absolutely personal. Well, first of all, what we're doing is a lot less courageous than crossing the channel in a small boat to pick people off, off a beach. But the motivation of the people who took their boats over the channel, I think, is exactly the same motivation that inspires us. I think that we're all responding in, in, in a way to kind of, not a call to arms, but something approaching it. I think people want to do their bit. What I notice in the checkpoints that we pass through is how young the soldiers were. And I say I have, I have a son in the army, I have another son who's definitely conscriptable. And the sight of those boys, this is in the west of the country, so not in danger particularly, but they were nervous. And they'd been told to be nervous. Those sort of quivering teenagers with their AK-47s and brand spanking new uniforms made me absolutely determined to, to do what I can to make sure that more boys aren't called up and put into the front line with not enough training and throw their lives away. Something that struck me while travelling with the volunteers was how informal this operation really is. There's no website, no contact page or FAQs. It's all built on networks of people who know Hugh. Friends of friends of friends. Or people like Paul who heard about it by chance or on a podcast. There are advantages to running this operation so informally. So we think of ourselves really like a very small Amazon delivery service for a few chosen units, really, hoping to avoid all the sort of bureaucratic problems, all the risk of things disappearing somewhere along the line for either reasons of corruption or incompetence or whatever. We don't want this to become big and unwieldy. We want it to remain very agile because more than once we've been going to deliver to people and right at the last minute they've either been captured or they've been injured and we've had to change our plans. And that flexibility is very important to us. The other thing that's very important to us is in fact, this is all done on trust. The donations are all given to us by people who have absolutely haven't got a website to look at. They've got no guarantee of what's happening with it. And people are extraordinarily trusting and generous. And a lot of people actually say, this is brilliant. This is exactly the sort of organisation we've been looking for. Since we featured one of the volunteers on the podcast last November, Hugh tells me he's been flooded with emails and requests to get involved. That's absolutely true. And it is very difficult for us to deal. But I don't see that as um, a problem because we're not like a normal bigger charity. After being towed away from the hard shoulder by the Ukrainian minibus, the broken down truck ended up being repaired at a local Polish garage and was left there for a future volunteer to pick up. After many hours, we were able to get back on the road to get as far into Poland as possible. It's just gone 11pm, we're on a Polish motorway. We've been on the road from central Germany since 9am. All I know now is German and Polish motorway and German and Polish petrol stations. That is my life, just the endless road, slowly closer to Krakow. It had already been three days and just over 1,000 miles. Throughout the whole operation, Hugh marvelled at the solidarity he found not just among his friends in the UK raising money for his cause, but at each and every step of the many journeys he's undertaken across Europe. But not just in Ukraine, we've, on this trip, actually, we have, for the first time, had 
not one but two breakdowns on the way and they were covered by roadside assistance but it was dealt with far more efficiently just by one of our Ukrainian contacts getting in touch with local volunteer contacts in this case in Germany and them talking to friends who immediately turned up in 10 minutes 15 minutes towed us to a garage did all they could to get the car fixed the things they couldn't fix they agreed to take the car over get it fixed in time for the next time we come out to pick up and the amount of goodwill when people know not just from Ukrainians in exile but from ordinary Germans working in garages or ordinary Poles working in garages is absolutely immense actually I've been bowled over by how quickly and efficiently we've been helped After four days driving across Europe, we finally arrived on the Ukrainian border. Sometimes the line here to get in and out of the country can be vast, but we were in luck. The crossing took just a few hours. I was last in Ukraine in summer 2022, and it felt an immense privilege to be able to return. Although we were far from the front lines, signs of the war were present everywhere. Every cemetery we passed, for example, contained fresh graves festooned with Ukrainian flags. And arriving in Lviv, we were greeted by the first air siren of the trip. We pulled up in the beautiful historic centre of the city, opened the car doors, and heard the sound of the siren overlaid with the amplified prayers of the local church. Have a listen. Lviv's architecture, culture and history is a fascinating confluence of influences that tell the sometimes confusing and often bloody history of Ukraine. Before we moved on, I wanted to talk to someone who knew the city and its history inside out. In the beautiful Renok Square, I spoke to Dr. Sofia Diak, a historian based in Lviv. For the first time in the trip, it felt good to slow down and spend some time to understand a place rather than simply racing through it in a car. The city, the modern city, if you would think about modernity coming somewhere from the late 18th century, the city was annexed, became part of Austrian Empire as a part of partition of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the city was a regional center for the crown land of Galicia for almost 150 years. But if you think in terms of who lived here, and we have a United Nation coming, like with big, big cars. There are three United Nations trucks, the UN all over them, the UNDP, just making the rounds in the square. Nobody is allowed. You have to have a special permission to do that. Yeah, well, to do, we, do, do we have a sense of what they're doing? Where are they going? They're going into the... They're going into the courtyard of the town hall. So the, the, the town hall has an inner courtyard. They're coming from back from buildings into the people, so who lived here, beginning 20th century. So the city was like around 50% by people who would be defined as Poles, but also none of the groups is homogeneous mm. and Polish in the meaning of the contemporary word. So then you would have like 30 to 35% Jewish, Hasidim, Orthodox, acculturated, speaking Yiddish, speaking Hebrew, speaking German, speaking Polish. And then you would have 15% of people who were Ukrainians, sometimes before so-called Ruthenians. And so you would have that those who also religion mattered much more. So religion was also 
was a big denominator. So big chances if you're Polish, so that's Rome Catholic, Ukrainians, Greek Catholic, and Judaism for, for Jewish population. So you think about different religions, you think about different languages, people communicating in many ways, and this is, this is working as a part of uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, which stopped existing as a result of World War I. What do you think the impact of not having the sort of Russian influence until, or so much, not so much Russian influence, until 1939, unlike lots of Eastern modern Ukraine? I mean, that, that, that's a really interesting fact, I think. We've had more connection to Krakow, Prague, Budapest, Vienna, Berlin, and by that also to Paris, people were traveling, studying. And so there was very physical closeness, which was enhanced by infrastructure, by railways, which would take you to places. And then it would impact knowledge production, economy, exchange. I mean, in terms of diversity, Eastern Ukraine or Central or part of Ukraine, which was a part of Russian Empire, was also incredibly multi-diverse because you think that there were many Poles living there in Kyiv. Polish was language spoken in Kyiv extensively in 19th century. Yiddish, because it was a part of Pale of Settlement, which is like this regulation which restricted Jewish habitation and permission to settle to what is the territories which are now basically central Ukraine and Belarus. But the difference would be that there was a different legal framework of political activities, political pluralism. So this being a part of Polish state, it actually was a parliament, there were parties, you could vote. And we don't know how the state would develop because this development was interrupted with the war, right? But in Soviet Ukraine, there was one party. And here there were a couple, you might not like all of them, but there were parties, there were elections, there were demonstrations. There's a different format of political and social engagement. And even if new state comes in and sets up new laws and new regulations, old things linger. Even if they don't have legal power, they still influence the way people relate. Relate to space, relate to each other. But grew three times during the Soviet period, became quite a big and established new relations with the cities in, in, in Soviet Ukraine and becoming part. And it was not the only city because we actually would see that cities like Uzhorod, Chernitsy became part of Soviet Ukraine you know, after the Second World War. Experiences do not go away, mm. even if they are not noticed on the first glance. When you look at that, you would never ever think that this is a Soviet city. So just to say, we're looking out across this incredibly beautiful central square. There's loads of, as, as it is, as you said, 19th century buildings, facades. There's a beautiful town hall. Uh, there are cafes everywhere, people walking past. You're right. I, I look at that and think, I don't see the Soviet. What, what am I missing? But you're missing that this whole center was created like a historical heritage site by the Soviet in the 70s creating it as a, something that you have to preserve. We share much more with places which look much more different. <laughs> and I think that that's a good beginning for conversation.
what would you want listeners to understand about Lviv as it is today, right now? So if listeners would go on Google and have a look at the images of the city, it's quite obvious that the city was and is a touristic centre. So the city for the last two decades, really, in, in the context of Ukraine, made a huge career as a tourist city. In Odessa, people would go for the sea. In Lviv, there was a policy of creating like all year long festivals, museum activities, tourism, restaurants, eating, food. And I think that that's quite extraordinary to think how this whole hospitality complex in the way of hotels and people and food and culture was mobilized to help refugees because hotels and theaters which had spare space accommodated. The big wave is over, city kind of absorbed. There are many people coming. We say that around 150,000 people came and stayed in Lviv as refugee. And the city is around 750 to 8,000. It's quite a lot. But the city is also a place which is relatively safe in Ukraine. Because we are sitting here having not really very much bothering of air raid, which was before we started our conversation. So the city is now becoming a place of refuge, but also a place of rehabilitation. So the whole infrastructure of medical is really becoming an infrastructure of dealing with the with wounded, with soldiers who are wounded, with civilians who are wounded. And I think it's actually quite, quite extraordinary to see how it is a, probably a new chapter for the city, maybe from entertainment and tourism to care to welfare, but also maybe to a way of having a conversation, not only to show things about history, but also to think about contemporary challenges of how to, how to deal the war, the effects war has. The sounds you're hearing is Lviv. The city is alive. It's a beautiful evening here. I'm standing in Rhinox Square. The bars and restaurants are full. I can see teenagers taking selfies. Um, there's a man dressed as Mickey Mouse wandering up and down somewhere, playing music. In the corner of the square, there's a ornate lamppost festooned with flowers. There's a man beneath it selling balloons. The centre of Lviv is this sort of tourist paradise, really. It's beautiful, wide-open squares, pretty streets, bars and restaurants sort of everywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of Sunny Days in Kramatorsk. After many days travelling across Europe, speeding past the wind farms of the Netherlands, the industrial Ruhr, the quiet German towns warmed by the summer sun, and then over to Poland to get through the breakdowns, to get into country and see Lviv for the first time. It was an immense trip, over a thousand miles, and I was already exhausted. But from now, 
the story starts to change. We'd left the EU behind, and the next few days of travelling would take us to Kyiv, then Kharkiv, and finally, Kramatorsk. Do come back tomorrow for the second part of Sunny Days in Kramatorsk. I'm David Knowles. This episode was produced by Giles Gear, Louisa Wells, and Adley Pojman-Ponte.